Spirits podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 326, all about, Julia, one of my very favorite plays, Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. Yes, Amanda, kind of keeping with the fact that we are theater kids at heart still and now and for always, and we recently covered the Oedipus plays, I wanted to bring up another play that really does kind of tie into mythology and folklore, which we haven't really gotten a chance to talk about here on the podcast, and that is, in fact, Dr. Faustus. Yes. I am sure a lot of people listening, they've probably heard the name Faust or Faustus, or maybe have heard of something about the Faustian deal. And I'm sure most, if not all of our listeners know about making a quote unquote deal with the devil. But Amanda, this is a source material that I think you might be fairly familiar with. Yes, I was lucky enough to study abroad in London, where I took four classes, two of which involved seeing plays every week. And so for 12 weeks in London, I saw two plays a week, sometimes more, and spent a lot of time with someone I met on YouTube. And that was my my uh, my semester abroad. I saw a production of Dr. Faustus at the Globe Theater <gasps> involving Arthur Darville, who was then playing the uh, companion to Karen Gillan's, or the boyfriend to Karen Gillan's companion in Doctor Who, which was incredibly cool and fun. I stood like five feet from the stage, saw Arthur Darville sweat a lot, and I really love this play, and I am so stoked that we get to talk about it on Spirits. Was he playing Dr. Faustus in that? He was playing Mephistopheles, Whoa. my favorite beleaguered, uh, bureaucratic devil who the whole play is like, please don't do this. And Faustus is like, ignoring you. <laughs> ignoring you. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. That's incredible. Also, that sounds like a great class where it's just like, you go see plays and then you talk about them. That's the dream. The dream. Yes. And read them. It was it was great. Amanda, I I love that you are so familiar with this one. I, I really think you're going to have a lot of fun insight because you've read it and you talked about it and you've seen it and it's going to be a lot of fun. So for the people who are listening here, we are referring to the Elizabethan play written by Christopher Marlowe in 1592, right before Marlowe's death in 1593. But it's also worth noting that the character of Faust was a German legend based on a real man named Johann George Faust. So Johann George Faust was a alchemist, an astrologer, a magician during the German Renaissance who lived a very successful but uh, arguably unsatisfying life, at least in his mind, right? And so I guess to like spice things up or something, he decides to make a pact with the devil at a crossroads, exchanging his soul for worldly pleasures and unlimited knowledge. Haven't we all? Haven't we all? Have we all, man? And the actual facts of the real-life Johann George Faust are a little bit contested. His birth year is assumed to be either 1466 or 1480, a large time span to have been oh, yeah. debatable. His name is sometimes recorded as George rather than Johann George or just George Johann. It's, no one is quite certain. And the city that he was said to have been born in is contested as well. So basically, we don't know a lot about his early life, but we do know that in 1506, he was first recorded as a performer of magic tricks and horoscopes in the German town of Gelnhausen. Wow. Also, I feel like, I know this was a long time ago, right? Almost 500 years ago, but it also feels like the way everyone's grandparents just acted. I asked my grandfather how old my grandmother, who was deceased before I grew up, was. And he was like, I don't know. She's born, I don't know, 1920, 1925. I don't know. And I was like, how do you not know? <laughs> <laughs> was she 20 or 25 when you guys got married? Please. I know. I know. There's two things there. You know, record keeping, unless you were like a king or something, was not yes. super common during this time period. So I don't blame people for that. The fact that we know he was real at all and there are any mentions of this Faust is incredible. Yes, exactly. So Amanda, over the next 30 years, there are many reports of a man who that is like reported to be him traveling all throughout southern Germany, sometimes as a philosopher or an alchemist or a magician or an astrologer, but sometimes also just like being accused of being a fraud. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Your mileage may vary. So he was denounced at one point by the church for being a blasphemer and being in league with the devil. Okay. Again, because it's the church, we have records of it. That's good. So that's one of the few things we know about him is the church was like, blasphemer, don't listen to him. Yeah. So that was basically his life until his death, which was either in 1540 or 1541. 
And the death was reported to have been because of an explosion during an alchemical experiment, which is a wild way to go. Sounds like high mythology, right? It's like, ah, yes, this, you know, this guy was blaspheming all over the country. And you know what? He got killed by the phosphorus. Yes, by the phosphorus. Oh, no. The white smoke of the, the phosphorus. That's what phosphorus is, right? <laughs> yes, I think so. Great. So even after Faust's death, there were, you know, that's when all the rumors start, right? Someone yes. dies and now you hear everyone being like, oh, I met him on a road once and he turned my donkey into a bale of hay. <laughs> it, it's just all stories about that. Once he's dead, everyone's like, oh, no, I did meet him, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. how everyone like met JFK before he was assassinated, you know? Yeah, we were actually best friends, right? We were actually best friends and uh, I miss him. But also, yes, he was in league with the devil. My bad. And this is kind of why his, like, personage, his character became this character of folklore rather than just being a historical figure. Because one, we don't know a ton about him. So it's a lot of filling in the blanks. And the stories that people were telling became the folklore itself. And I think that's fascinating part of both history and when history turns people into folklore itself. 100%. Now that we know a little bit about the real Faust, let's get into Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, okay? So, Amanda, I know you are very familiar with the opening of this play, but for people who are not aware, we start with a single actor who is acting as our chorus, who introduces the play to us, tells us that this is not a play about war or love, but rather, quote, the form of Faustus's fortunes, which I think is mm -hmm. a great line. So he tells the audience, us, the audience, how Faustus was born to a poor family in a small town, then moved to the German town of Wittenberg to live with other members of his family, and how he attended the university there, world-renowned university in Wittenberg. He studied and gained the title of Doctor of Divinity mm -hmm. and became famous for his philosophizing about theology. Love it. Until Julia, yes. swollen with cunning of self-conceit, his waxen wings did mount above his reach, and melting heavens conspired his overthrow. For falling to a devilish exercise, and glutted more with learning's golden gifts, his surfeits upon cursed necromancy, nothing so sweet as magic is to him, which he prefers before his chiefest bliss. And this is the man that in his study sits. Amanda. I love this opening. One, I'm so glad you did the swollen with cunning section because it's so freaking cool. So the chorus immediately is, and we talked about this in the, the Oedipus plays, but it's very inspired by Greek mythology right off the bat. We have this chorus member. We have like literal allusions to the story of Icarus, someone who flew mm -hmm. too close to the sun and then was that was his downfall. And I really just love this idea that right off the bat, we are giving this image of a man who's going to be brought down by his own hubris. Mm-hmm. Nothing starts off a play better than someone, one, giving us background. Love love a little, like, <laughs> background here at the beginning. This is what, you might wonder how I got here. This is what you missed. Exactly. It's like the freeze frame of the rat jumping out the window. Yeah. Ratatouille reference. And then we're just like, we're in it. You know what I mean? But again, this play seems so just, like, taken off the writings of Sophocles or whatnot. And it, I... It's just beautiful. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, the first two lines of the play of this chorus's monologue are not marching now in fields of Trasimene, where Mars didn't meet the Carthaginians. Like they are like, this is a story of folklore. We talk about the Romans. We refer to the Greeks like this is our protagonist. And I think it's really fascinating to say things like slightly later in this monologue, right before that sort of biographical section. They say, only this gentleman, we must perform the form of Faustus's fortunes, good or bad. Mm -hmm. To patient judgments, we appeal our plaud. So like, hey, wait, think about it. We're going to enact his whole thing for good and bad and like leave you at the end to decide if he is evil or if he is good. And we'll talk about this at the end, but that is such a choice by Marlowe. Because, like, in any other person playwright's hands, this is a morality play telling you, hey, don't do what this guy did. But Marlowe instead, right off the bat, is like, I'm going to let you judge whether or not the decisions that Faustus makes in this story are good or bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not telling you that he made the right or wrong decision, which most other authors would be like, this guy's a bad guy. But Marlowe specifically sets him up as this kind of, like, 
relatable protagonist. And I think that's really kind of the interesting part here. And I want people to think about that as we kind of enter the story. Yeah. And something else that we talked a lot about in my class and that scholars and, you know, theater people like to debate is sort of Marlowe versus Shakespeare. They were contemporaries. They were writing, you know, at the same time. Um, When we think about their plays, Marlowe is really only ever mentioned as a sort of like foil or peer to Shakespeare. It's also a very different tact, like plenty of Shakespeare's plays have a chorus or have a monologue, but it's never quite so straightforward as like, this is the deal today, people. (laughs) And it's a really interesting format. It really is. And I, I think that's a great moment for us to slowly move into our setting of our scene here, right? Mm hmm. So the play begins with Faustus, who, of course, the second we start meeting him, monologuing. There's a lot of Faustus just monologuing throughout this entire play. Get ready for that. So he's specifically monologuing about education and scholarship. He first thinks about, like, logic as a study of scholarship and is like, okay, logic is cool. We love Aristotle. But the point of all of it just seems to be the best at arguing. And I'm already such a great debater, so I don't think logic is going to be the best scholarly pursuit. Mm -hmm. He then starts thinking about like medicine. And while medicine is like cool and coming up with all of these seemingly miraculous cures is neat, he's already achieved so much as a doctor and he's famous for that. But it's not satisfying to him enough, you know? Mm -hmm. In fact, Julia, he says... Thou art still but Faustus and a man. Wouldst thou make man to live eternally, or being dead, raise them to life again? Then this profession were to be esteemed. Physic, farewell. (laughs) He like, and in the production I saw, he's like throwing books behind him. Like, ah, fuck that. No, get that out of here. Yeah, fuck this book. Fuck that book. Yeah. Next, he considers law. No, law is like really petty. It's too trivial. It focuses on the petty squabbles of man. Not into it. Not about it. Paltry legacies, please. (laughs) Divinity, maybe? Religion and theology? No, because Christianity says that all men sin and that the reward of sin is death. And if that is the case, what's the point? So why study theology? The line is, and I remember the line reading, you know, 12 years later to this day is, the reward of sin is death. That's hard. Throws the book. That's so awesome. Yeah. No, Faustus tells the audience. Religion will not do. He will just have to focus on magic. Quote, the metaphysics of magicians and the necromantic books are heavenly. And Julia, here we reach young Amanda's first annotation in her copy of Dr. Faustus, which is to underline the word heavenly there, because I'm sure we will talk about the, like, frankly, heretical nature of this play. The fact that he is not only and straightforwardly saying, ah, yes, no, this man like flew too close to the sun, tried to work with the devil and he got what he deserved. But he's like enacting blasphemy here on the stage and calling the the metaphysics of magicians and necromancers. Necromancer's heavenly. Yeah. And then goes on to say, if he can master magic, he will become a mighty god. Mm-hmm. Heresy all over the place. Blasphemy yep. all over the place. You can see why the church called the real Faust a blasphemer. Exactly. What a world of profit and delight, of power, of honor, of omnipotence is promised to the studious artisan, a.k.a. become a god. Become a god. Study of some magic, become a god. Seems like a great deal. Don't know why not everyone else is doing this, Faust. You're right. Yeah. No consequence is possible. No consequence is possible. So from this point, then, his servant Wagner enters and Faustus asks him to call upon his two friends, Valdez and Cornelius, who he hopes will help him become a better master of the art of magic, right? So Wagner leaves to do so. And while he's waiting, two angels, one good and one evil, appear in front of Faustus because we are not waiting a moment to get into like the real magic of this show. It's happening right away. We're already there. Mm Mm-hmm. So the good angel is like, my guy, put away the magic books, turn to the scripture instead, don't go down this path, right? And the evil angel is like, nah, man, magic fucking rocks, don't listen to this nerd, it's totally fine, don't worry about it. And after that, they vanish, and Faustus is like, that evil angel seemed cool, gonna have to listen to him, magic does seem really cool, glad he confirmed it for me. Easy peasy. Yeah, 
And in fact, as Faustus, like right after he talks about the angels, then Velas and Cornelius come back in and immediately without them speaking, Faustus is like, ah, yes, your sweet words have won me at last, boys. Like, we know what's going on here. And they're both like, we didn't say anything. Like, <laughs> like he's just he's just, you know, treating everybody around him as a sort of like object to bounce his own ego off of and justify his own actions. Yes, I 100 percent agree. He's just like he just needs sounding boards to tell him that his own ideas are good. Like, and so everything that happened so far is like confirmation to him. Like, oh, yes, I'm doing the right thing. Don't worry about it. Faustus must be a bad hang, but maybe he has like good wine or something if, you know, these people are still hanging around. Exactly. So Valdus and Cornelius do agree to like, we'll help you figure out the magic stuff. We've been studying it for a while. I bet you could be even better than this. Again, stroking that ego for sure. Uh, and then Faustus is like, come have dinner with me. And then they all walk off stage. So I agree with your statement. He probably has just like a lot of money. And they're like, whatever you say, my guy, you seem smart. Exactly. And I mean, again, the man is like the most dramatic protagonist in all of Elizabethan drama. And that's saying a lot like Hamlet's in there, too. Yeah. So Faustus' final couplet in this scene is, For ere I sleep, I'll try what I can do. This night I'll conjure, though I die therefore. <laughs> He's like, if I die, fuck it. I'm here for legacy, baby. <laughs> here for the legacy. Let me have the legacy. Yow. Come on, Faustus. Those three exit, and then we cut over to these other two scholars who have come to visit the, the famous Faustus, right? And they are greeted by Wagner, who just, like, spends a lot of time making fun of them. And is yep. like, you guys suck. Uh, Faustus is busy with his two friends. Don't worry about it. And the scholars recognize that, like, the two friends are Valdez and Cornelius. And they're like, oh, those guys are, like, pretty infamously into the black arts. It's kind of disappointing that Faustus is falling into what they considered, quote, that damned art. Mm -hmm. So I really, they're, they're just like, we're gone. This guy's a lost cause to us now. That's a shame. Yeah. The next scene, we're back with Faustus in the evening, and he's just like fully in the middle of summoning a demon, right? He's like got the magic circle going. He's chanting in Latin. He's doing the whole thing that we've seen in the movies a million times over. Unknown to Faustus, but visible to the audience, we can see like Lucifer and four of his devils watching as Faustus begins to renounce heaven and God and religion and swear his allegiance to hell, just like really going into a thing that he just decided on this morning. Yeah, I just wanted to point out, Julia, before yeah. before Faustus goes to dinner, um, he says, Valdez, as resolute am I in this as thou to live. Like, Faustus, you decided on this five minutes ago. Five minutes ago. He's like, <laughs> call these guys. They're going to come. And now I am like, this is my life now. I know. Like a guy that gets really into crypto and decides to spend all of his money on crypto. And then he's like, I'm invested now. This is everything. Mm -hmm. This is everything. And I'm sure it's going to end uh, just as well as it does for the crypto guys. Yeah, exactly right. So he's got this whole demon summoning thing happening. Faustus in his ritual demands that Mephistopheles, because I guess he knows his name from one of the books he read or something like that. He asks that Mephistopheles rise to serve him, and he does so appear. So Faustus immediately is like, hey, Mephistopheles, get out of here and come back dressed like a friar because, quote, that holy shape becomes a devil best, which is, again, the heresy and blasphemy happening all over the place here in this play. Yeah, I can only imagine people like harumphing and walking out of the, the theater as this is being performed. Like this is 10 minutes into the play. This is they're not like saving this for, you know, act five. No, I feel like I feel like if I was, again, a common person seeing this in the seeing the play in probably wouldn't have been in the globe at this point. Would it have been in the globe at this point? Uh, no, there was another theater that he performed at. Mm -hmm. uh, I can probably find it in my book somewhere. OK, no worries. But I imagine being like just a common person and being like, wow, this guy's saying a lot of bad shit. I hope something bad happens to him. I hope he gets his comeuppance, you know? Yeah, exactly. But again, like that that beginning, you know, the beginning's asking us to have an open mind. And it's a pretty big leap for people living right now. Exactly. 100%. It's like succession, like watching a show about people who are bad and knowing that like hopefully something bad is going to happen to them. Or like White Lotus, for example. I think that's yes. the same... <laughs> the same linear line or the same kind of like cultural line through those various uh, stories. Totally. So Mephistopheles disappears when Faustus says, you know, come back dressed like a friar. And Faustus is like, wow, this guy's so obedient. Magic is great. I'm so great at magic. And then, <laughs> and then Mephistopheles reappears now dressed as a monk and is like, okay, so what can I do for you? And again, Faustus is like, so obedient. I want you to be obedient to me. 
and only to me. And Mephistopheles is like, sorry, chief, I am Lucifer's servant and only his. And I am really only here because I heard you renounce God. And I'm hoping I could snatch up that sweet little soul of yours. <laughs> exactly right. And um, Arthur Darville's performance, I, I thought was really good. I've only ever seen one, but this this version really stuck with me where he was really like a, a beleaguered bureaucrat. Mm -hmm. He was just like, yeah, like the boss. like. Ugh. And there are definitely moments where Mephistopheles, you know, shows some more spine and really reminds you that he is, uh, you know, the work of the devil. You know, his posture was was slouched. He was very cowering to, you know, loud noises. And I think it's a really fascinating image of Faustus, who literally, Julia calls himself, thou art conjurer laureate. Whoa! Uh, <laughs> no one self-hypes like Faustus to Mephistopheles being like, yeah, I belong to Lucifer, so uh, you have to like work that out. <laughs> he just have like real middle manager energy. I think I wrote in my notes, I was like... Wow, Mephistopheles is just like a used car dealer where exactly. you're like making a deal with him. He's like, I'm going to have to take this to my boss and see what he has to say about this. Mm -hmm. Faustus at this point, upon hearing like, oh, I want to snatch your sweet little soul. He's like, OK, I guess. But like, first, I have questions for you. I need to know like that you're the real deal. And so he asks Mephistopheles about hell and Lucifer. And he finds out that Lucifer and all of his devils were once angels who rebelled against God. And as such, they have been damned to hell forever, which you would think that Faustus would already know since apparently he did like study theology. And they do kind of talk about this in the Bible, but like, whatevs, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Ignoring that fact. But Faustus points out like, hey, if you're damned to hell forever, how are you here on earth? And Mephistopheles is like, listen, being deprived of the presence of God is hell. So whether we're in hell itself or we're here on earth, we're in hell. And Faustus is like, wow, that sounds like sentimental crap, my guy. But hey, I've got a deal for you. Listen, I will offer my soul up to Lucifer in exchange for 24 years of your service. And again, going back to the reference I made before, Mephistopheles, much like a used car dealer, is like, I got to take this deal to my boss and see what he has to say. And he disappears. Right? Exactly. And so we get another like little monologue from Faustus here saying like, if he had, quote, as many souls as there be stars, he would offer them all up for power so that he could like get that power from Mephistopheles. Yeah, he's like, man, I would give literally anything to Mephistopheles because Mephistopheles can do literally anything. And I can move the continents. I can be an emperor. I can do whatever I wanted. Of course I would do that. Absolutely. Obviously. We then get, because these plays, like Shakespeare and Marlowe, they all love little like comedic breaks in between the like main action of the scenes. Yes. And so we get another little break here with the servant Wagner, who is chatting with a clown, and he wants the clown to become his servant for seven years, right? Mm -hmm. And the clown, poor guy, uh, considering it. And Wagner kind of mocks him saying that he would sell his soul to the devil for something as simple as a shoulder of mutton, to which the clown responds, it would have to be a well-seasoned shoulder of mutton. <laughs> it's a very good, like, Elizabethan joke. It's very good. I know. You can really tell. And like Marlowe was in and out of jail. He was like mixed up with the wrong crowd. He was, you know, like doing a lot. He died in like a tavern brawl. Classic. To a guy with a great name. You can tell that he's like spent a lot of time with like really witty like drunkards mm -hmm. um, to come up with these rejoinders or is perhaps the wittiest among all the drunkards he's hanging out with. I also want to be the wittiest amongst all the drunkards I'm hanging out with. Right? Not bad. That's a dream. Ingram Freiger is the name of the guy who killed him, by the Whoa, way. Whoa, that's a wild name. I love that. Incredible. So the clown almost agrees to become Wagner's servant, but then changes his mind. Wagner threatens him with some magic. He conjures two devils who say and like says like, oh, I'm going to carry you the clown to hell if you don't comply to becoming my servant. And the clown, terrified, obviously, agrees. And then he asks Wagner if he too can learn how to conjure demons. And Wagner's like, I'll teach you how to turn yourself into an animal, but also it's Master Wagner to you now, buddy. Excuse me. Which I don't. I maybe you can explain it to me, Amanda. Do they ever like explain why Wagner can also summon demons and stuff? Or it's just like, oh, every member of my household has some magic. I think it's more the latter. Um, that's not something I've heard discussed. I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's papers on it. Mm -hmm. But the idea of like access to the dark arts as a contagion that will spread if you are not sort of resolute about your soul mm. is something a in christian theology that the devil's you know temptations are around and you have to be really on guard against it but also i think that's why we open where the only people apart from faustus and 
you know, the chorus that we meet are these other scholars, like these randos, right, who come in yeah. and they're like, yeah, that's a bad crowd. And Faust is in with them and probably bad for him, where they're really like implying that access to these knowledges spreads like a disease. And I think anyone in Faustus's household is going to be similarly tainted. I love that theory. That's a great theory, Amanda. And I, I, it's very like medieval to Renaissance transition of like the idea that if you don't keep your household in order, it will fall into chaos. Like the head of the household is very much the example by which everyone else follows. Yeah. And if Faustus is making deals with devils, naturally the rest of his household is going to be equally corrupted. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Perfect as always. So we cut back to Faustus, who the longer he's like taking to think about it, the more reluctant he is to sell his soul. And we see those two angels return. The good angel returns and tells him that he can still turn back. But Faustus denies him, saying that, like, God doesn't love me, so why should I love God? Which is, again, blasphemy everywhere, throwing the blasphemy all around. Yeah, there's a reason Christopher Marlowe was arrested for blasphemy and heterodoxy. <laughs> yep, that'll do it. Yep, that'll do it. The evil angel then shows up and is like, hey, think about all that like money and power you could get through this deal. Totally worth it, right? And Faust is like, damn, you're right. You're right, evil angel. And so calls Mephistopheles back, who tells him that Lucifer has accepted his deal. So Faustus makes the deal. He writes it out in his own blood, but his blood keeps congealing before he can sign the actual deal itself. Mm -hmm. And Mephistopheles is like really annoyed by this and just like, I'm going to go find some fire to loosen up your blood. And while he's gone, Faustus again is like being plagued by this indecision. Like even my blood is telling me not to make this deal. Like, am I am I making the wrong decision here? Yeah. What might the staying of my blood portend? Is it unwilling I should write this bill? Why streams it not that I may write afresh? I love that. So glad that you have the book in front of you so we can pull all these great quotes. Julia, we'll put it on the Insta. This is a hot photo of Christopher Marlowe and kept this book around for many years. <laughs> Solely for how hot he looks on the end. <laughs> and by photo, of course, I mean painting that mm -hmm. makes him look like white Jesus. But, yeah. you know, it's it, it's a look. He sure does look like white Jesus, huh? By that time, Mephistopheles has come back and Faustus signs the deal. He then discovers on his arm an inscription that says homo fuge, which means man, fly. Mm -hmm. And Faustus kind of like wonders, like, what does that mean? But he's distracted because Mephistopheles then presents like just a group of devils who adorn him in like robes and jewels and a crown. And Faustus is like, OK, no, this is great. I don't know what I was worried about. This is awesome. So he hands over the contract and then kind of idly wonders where hell is allowed. And Mephistopheles remarks that there is no real location to hell, that it just kind of exists everywhere because hell exists where the damned are cut off from God. Again, right. kind of like these really beautiful imageries for like Christianity and the themes throughout, but also like horrifying when you think about it too much. Yeah, it really is. And that speech of Mephistopheles from a couple scenes ago, he says like, I who saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven am tormented with 10,000 hells and being deprived of everlasting bliss. So it's like, I doesn't matter where I am. Hell is distance from God, which is in, in a way, like you're saying, very traditional and very true and very like, you know, approaching kind of the rise of like a personal and non-church mediated relationship with God following the Great Schism. This is really poetic and meaningful. And like, you really sympathize with Mephistopheles much more than Faustus as an audience member. Oh, 100%. Meanwhile, Faustus is like, sounds fake. Don't worry about that. Hell probably isn't even real. Anyway, can I have a wife now, please? <laughs> I know. It, and also, like, if, if Mephistopheles is saying, hell is how I feel, and Faustus is like, meh, fuck that. <laughs> that <laughs> fuck <sucks>. your feelings. <laughs> that sucks. Mephistopheles is like, Sure, man, whatever. How about a like nice, pretty she-devil? And Faust is like, no, I'd like a real human wife, please. And so the devil is like, okay, here's a book. Read it carefully. Maybe you'll get a wife out of it. <laughs> Faust just, once again, because we like to do everything in, in threes or in magic numbers, wonders if maybe he should repent, not cut himself off from heaven, and then is like, actually, my heart's so hardened, I cannot repent. A wild line to say. We love it. So he asks Mephistopheles just a bunch of questions about the universe, the planets, the heavens, the nature of the universe. And when he asks who made the world, Mephistopheles is like, can't tell you that because it's, quote, against our kingdom. And when Faustus keeps, like, pressing and pressing, he leaves in a huff, right? And so, again, those two angels, the good angel and the evil angel, show up again. And the good saying, it's never too late to repent, man. It's okay. 
And when Faustus begins to repent, Lucifer, Beelzebub, and Mephistopheles all enter and tell him, hey, stop thinking about God. Check out these cool sins instead. And they Mm -hmm. basically do like a pageant show of the seven deadly sins, which is kind of fun. They sure do. How did that look on stage? Yeah, they they like put Faustus in the audience and they had uh, a bunch of actors wearing like robes and huge masks, which would be kind of period appropriate, come in and like do, yeah, the little pageantry. And it was incredibly fun. Something that you really miss about these shows is that there was like a live band and they would play transition music. They would, you know, play like fun undertones for those comedic scenes. And there are a number of times when there's just dancing devils in this play. That's incredibly incongruous to me, to the like beautiful prose. But at the time, like, Theater was a variety show and yeah. you wanted to have romance, you know, funny moments, fighting, like all, you know, all the kind of ups and downs. And it was awesome. This play, it does have it all, which we love. We love to see it. Mm-hmm. Faustus, after this little pageantry play, asks Lucifer if he can see hell. And Lucifer is like, sure, I'll take you there later, buddy. But until then, here's a book that can show you how to change your shape. And Faustus is like, excellent. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for the gift, Lucifer. We then cut to another new character in the next scene, which is Faustus's stable hand named Robin, who has found one of the good doctor's books and is teaching himself some spells. He then chats with the innkeeper named Rafe, and they go to a bar together. And Robin is like, I'll conjure up any kind of wine that you want, my guy. I know magic because my boss is cool. Exactly. So they leave and then Wagner enters again, this time acting as our chorus. And he tells us some stuff that they probably couldn't actually portray on stage, specifically how Faustus traveled through the heavens on a chariot pulled by dragons so that he could learn the secrets of astronomy. Incredible. Couldn't portray that in uh, 1592 on stage. Huh, Marlo? No. That's fine. That's fine. So he then tells us how Faustus has been on a mission to measure the coasts and kingdoms across the world and last he heard was heading towards Rome. Yeah, it's a real situation where you're like, ah, yes, once I get this new job, I'll live in this fancy apartment. And then you don't get the job and you're like, fuck, or whatever kind of presumptuousness of, ah, yes, once this contract comes through, you know, I'll get do X, Y, and Z, but the money's not in your hand yet. Mm -hmm. And Faustus is like literally measuring his kingdom. The man is not emperor of the world yet. But Amanda, now he's made the deal. He could be. He could be. He thinks. He thinks. And so this seems like a great moment to grab our refill before we hear what else Faustus has gotten up to now that he's made his deal with the devil. Hey, this is Julia, and welcome to the refill. I am here, of course, obviously, to welcome our newest patrons to the Patreon family. That is Hannah Barbarian, great name, Neva and Reika. They join the ranks of our supporting producer-level patrons like Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Nieselkins, Lily, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan Malachi Cosmos, Sarah Scott and Zazi, and of course, our incredible legend-level patrons. Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi-Yokai, Clara, Ginger Spurs Boy, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and Beam Me Up Scotty. And you too can join our Patreon and get cool rewards like tarot readings, bonus Urban Legends episodes, and so much more by going to patreon.com slash spiritspodcast. Of course, this is the time where I tell you a little bit about stuff that I'm enjoying listening to, reading, watching lately. And I have to recommend the book Little Thieves by Margaret Owen. Not only do I love saying the title Little Thieves, It is a retelling of the fairy tale, The Goose Girl, and it takes place in kind of an alternate reality, magical fantasy Germany, and it is really fun. The characters are fun and interesting. I love a, like, morally gray character who is the lead, and Vanya is such a fun and interesting character to follow along through the series. So I think you'll really like Little Thieves. Check it out. You can click the link in our show notes to go to bookshop.org and pick it up for yourself, and also check out all of the other books that we've recommended including ones that Amanda and I have both recommended and links to books by authors who have been on the show as well. Check it out. That is spiritspodcast.com slash books. And as you are well aware, we are a founding member of Multitude, a podcast collective that has some really incredible shows on it. And if you enjoy spirits, I think you're going to love Exolore. Have you ever thought about how life would be like on a planet that is different from our own or how writers create your favorite fictional worlds? Well, you can wonder no longer because we have the facts for you. Every week, astrophysicist and folklorist Dr. Moya McTeer explores fictional worlds 
by building them with a panel of expert guests, interviewing professional world builders, or reviewing the merits of the worlds that have already been built. We are big fans of Dr. Moy McTeer here on the show, a frequent guest of our podcast, and I think that you will love Exolore. You will learn, you will laugh, and you will gain an appreciation for how special our planet really is. You can subscribe today by searching Exolore in your podcast app or going to exolorepod.com. And now I'm going to tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week, starting with Brooklinen. Listen, winter hibernation is going to be behind us soon. I promise it's going to get nice and warm out eventually. But a good night's sleep is always in season. It doesn't matter how warm or hot is outside. You want to be comfortable in your bed. And Brooklinen has your comfort covered with a lineup of cozy home essentials made for relaxation. Their classic and luxe sheets are made to meet the needs of both like hot and cold sleepers. I'm a cold sleeper. My husband's a hot sleeper and we both really enjoy our Brooklinen set. And with over 100,000 five-star reviews, it is no wonder why they are the go-to for stepping up all things winding down. I love that copy. That's great. And you can rest easy knowing Brooklyn delivers directly to your home with fast shipping. If you're looking to elevate your space or your rest and relaxation style, Brooklyn has you covered with their luxurious super plush towels and robes that kind of like make your own home feel like a spa. Seriously, it's beautiful. And if you get overwhelmed with overhauling your space, Please don't stress. Brooklinen's bundles put everything you need in one place. They have options for bed, bath, or both. And even better, when you bundle, you save time and money. Again, I love my Brooklinen sheets. They are so incredibly comfortable. We actually just got a set for the spring, which is kind of like a white with a black like grid style on it. And they are so luxurious. I love them so much. So you can shop online at brooklinen.com for a home refresh at its best. For a limited time, get $20 off plus free shipping on orders of $100 or more with code SPIRITS. That is B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, code SPIRITS for $20 off. And for all those looking to see and feel the comfort in real life, you can now shop Brooklyn in sheets, towels, and more in person by visiting a store near you. Thank you, Brooklyn. Speaking of comfort, what if there was a bra that makes your boobs look and feel amazing and is actually super comfortable all day long? Listen, most bras suck. It's just a fact, and that's a real bummer. But Third Love knows that it's not you, it's the bra. And Third Love has spent years designing bras for your body. They make over 60 sizes and even invented half cups, so you always get the perfect fit, which means you'll always look great and feel great. Here's the thing. I just wore my Third Love strapless bra to a wedding, and I was dancing the night away, and that thing did not slip at all. And that's just like simply not true of most strapless bras. It is the best strapless bra I've ever worn. And the fact that I can salsa and dance the whole night for like five hours and barely have to adjust it at all, it was a blessing. It was practically a miracle. I have to say it's wonderful. And it was comfortable. And that's the biggest part. And it was super easy to figure out what size was going to work best for me because of their really quick and simple fitting room quiz. It's super easy. Their virtual fitting room is basically like a personal shopper, but better. It looks at size and breast shape and fit issues and your own taste to find the bra size and styles that are perfect for you. And it's helped over 20 million people find their perfect bra size. And I love them. They're designed to fit and support your body. They have a style for every solution and outfit, and they will make you look and feel great in whatever you're wearing. And their perfect fit promise says never get stuck with a bad bra again. Returns and exchanges are free for 60 days. So ditch bad bras and get a better one that makes you look and feel great. Upgrade your bra and get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com spirits. That's 20% off your first order today at thirdlove.com spirits. And finally, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. I know that I'm not the same person I was when I was 27, 25, 21, 18, 16, which is when I started therapy, by the way. And it's especially true because we are always growing and changing. And therapy is all about kind of deepening your self-awareness and understanding of yourself. Because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way that we do until we have have someone to talk things through with. 
And BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I know that talking to a therapist helps me work out feelings that I'm having and frustrations that I'm having and allows me to kind of look inward and see why am I feeling this way? Why am I reacting this way? Where are these feelings coming from? And having a therapist to be there to be a kind of impartial person and tell you, hey, it seems like this might be the cause of that. Or hey, it seems like you're having a rough time with this. Let's examine ways of handling that. It's really, really useful. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com spirits today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com spirits. And now let's get back to the show. So for this cocktail, I went with one that's called the Devil's Soul, because at this point, that's what Faustus has gotten himself into. And I wanted something that kind of really evoked that. So it's something that is like smoky, flavorful, complex. This drink has rye. It's got mezcal. It's got amaro. It's also got some elderflower liqueur. So I think you'll be surprised when you have a sip if you're one of the people who enjoys these cocktails with us. Not worth selling your soul for, but close, I would say. Pretty close. Julie, that's what I was going to say. Took the words right out of my mouth. I always do. I always do. (laughs) Also, kind of the color of blood, which I appreciate. Listen, that's what I'm here for. The Amaro adds some great color. So at this point, Faustus shows back up on stage. He's telling Mephistopheles how he went from Germany to France, then Italy, and asks Mephistopheles if the devil has transported them to Rome, saying how he really wants to see the different monuments and whatnot. And Mephistopheles is like, yeah, my guy, we're actually in the Pope's privy chamber right now. Also, while we're here, want to play some tricks on the Pope? Again. Again. Heresy. (laughs) Again, heresy. At this point, Amanda, like the Church of England is a thing and a lot of the British population are not Catholics. They're some other form of Christianity, the Church of England specifically. And so like making fun of the Pope does seem like a very like thing people would do at this point in an English play. So I think it's kind of fun to be like, oh, man, we're going to go play some tricks on the Pope. Sounds good. It definitely is funny. And it's not, you know, the head of the Church of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, like that perhaps would not have flown. But it is still like making fun of another country's king is still raises some eyebrows. I would have to imagine, even if it's not your king. That's kind of how I view it. Yes, I agree with that for sure. And this is... They do some tricks on the Pope. Like, that's what the next scene is. They turn themselves into cardinals. They set a prisoner that the Pope wanted to uh, send to prison free. And then they make themselves invisible while the Pope sits down to dinner and they, like, curse loudly. They steal food from the Pope's plate. A bunch of the clergymen in the room think there's a ghost in the room. And they straight up just, like, beat up the clergymen, shoot fireworks at them, and then flee. Yep. It's a whole it's a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's truly a whole thing. And I imagine that in a production where they have like a lot of special effects and stuff, that's a very fun scene to to watch because they're probably like legit shooting fireworks. Yeah. And, and they had like, yeah, like little handheld, you know, like a, the little flame things like pew, pew, whatever they call. Yeah, like sparklers almost. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of running, a lot of exits, a lot of entrances in, you know, the Globe is an open air theater where I saw it. So there is like the environment and people around the stage are standing. And so it is just like, you know, you're on your feet for like two and a half, three hours, but it, it doesn't feel like that because it really, it really, you know, takes you in. It's it's an amazing spectacle. But again, all along in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is going to end really badly for Faustus. Like it's, it's uh, Faustus's many wild pranks, uh, but it's not going to be a happy ending for this guy. No, no, it's not. And you're like, again, I'm so sure he's going to get his comeuppance. You, I just uh-huh. know it. You know what I mean? Yep. So at this point, we cut back to Robin, that stable hand from before, who, along with his friend, the innkeeper, have stolen a cup from the tavern and are being chased by a winemaker who demands its return. And they're like, no, we don't have it. But the winemaker keeps pressing them. So Robin himself summons Mephistopheles, who scares them away. And Mephistopheles is like really annoyed by this. He's like, I don't want to be summoned for something like so insignificant and trivial. And so he threatens to turn Robin and the innkeeper into an ape and a dog. But the two of them just kind of like laugh it off. And Mephistopheles just disappears in a huff. And he's like, I'm going to go join Faustus in Turkey. Bye. (laughs) 
<laughs> See you, losers. But I also like, again, this is like this idea. I love the the portrayal that you saw where he is, again, this like kind of beleaguered middle manager who it's like you're like current boss who's Faustus. His employees are now using you as an employee. And you're like, that's not the deal that we made. That's not how it works. This stable hand doesn't get to just summon me whenever he wants. Mm-hmm. I think these interludes are like very eye-opening, but also very funny. So uh, shout out Marlo. Really good job. Yeah. We cut to the chorus arriving again, letting us know that Faustus is now back in Germany and has made a name for himself basically by going around and lecturing about all of the things that he has discovered because of the abilities that have been granted to him by Mephistopheles. And even the German emperor, Charles V, has heard of Faustus, and the chorus informs the audience that Faustus has been invited to the palace, and that is kind of the scene that we cut to next. Yeah, the chorus also mentions that his friends were, like, really worried about where he was. They didn't know if he died, didn't know if he was going to be okay. And when he came back, they were like, oh, thank God. So Faustus, bad friend as well. So Yeah, like, he's just being, like, a really bad friend. And it's also a good way to kind of give us the idea that a lot of time is passing in between these scenes, you know? Like, it's not just like, that was yesterday and now Faustus has done all of these things. Like, time is passing. We have a 24-year span that we have to get through. So Marlowe does not waste any time in making it seem like things are going on. Yeah, and I think they either grayed Faustus's hair or switched his wig up to sort of age him over the course of these, this like kind of back half of the play. That's smart. I mean, like, you have to show time passed somehow. It's like watching Les Mis and being like, how are you going to make that really hot young guy John Valjean at the beginning look like an old man who's dying at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we cut to the the court of Charles V, the emperor of Germany, and we meet these two members of the court who are chatting before the arrival of Faustus. And apparently Faustus has promised to summon the spirit of Alexander the Great for the emperor, which is Mm -hmm. big deal, big deal. Faustus arrives and he's like, what's up, Emperor? How can I serve you? And the Emperor again expresses like, I want to see Alexander the Great and his lover. And Faustus is like, okay, I can't produce their like legit bodies, but I can summon spirits that look like them. Is that good? And one of the knights of the court is basically like, "Mm, that sounds fake. You can probably do that as much as the goddess Diana can turn me into a deer right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Faustus at this point, we know is he's a braggart, right? And so he summons the spirit of Alexander and his lover embracing and then also conjures a pair of antlers onto the head of the knight that was mocking him. Because everyone loves a cuckold joke, even 500 years ago. I didn't know that was a cuckold joke, but I appreciate the context. Thank you so, so much. Mm hmm. So this knight immediately apologetic, like, that's my bad, my bad, please change me back. And the emperor is like, okay, that was a very cool trick, but also, yes, you have to change him back. And so Faustus does, but warns the knight, hey, you better be more respectful to powerful scholars like me in the future. Oh, my God. I know. What an absolute nerd dork. I know life was different back then, but like imagine scholars now being like, "Mm, I'm a scholar. I get paid $30,000 a year and have to work 100 hour weeks. You need (laughs) to respect me. I mean, I do respect scholars. We should. (laughs) Yeah. How the mighty have fallen. Seriously. Seriously. So the knight goes off and finds the two gentlemen from the court that we were introduced to earlier and tells them he's going to get his revenge on Faustus. And these two guys are like, no, man, that's a bad idea. You just saw what he did to you before. But this knight, you know, he was embarrassed in front of the whole court. So he like kind of fears for his reputation and he needs to get his revenge, you know? You have to. That's how you protect your manlyhood. Exactly. Toxic masculinity at work here on Faustus. Also, that's not a word, but manlyhood is like a slightly diminutive form of saying manhood. So I'm, I'm into it. Manlyhood. Yeah, you don't have to protect it. We know. It's okay. So this night, he basically plans to ambush Faustus when he leaves the court and also rob him of all these treasures that the emperor is supposedly going to give Faustus. So like one gets revenge, two gets a bunch of like prizes. It's really a win-win for this night if it pans out well. Yes. They just do that, really. So they kind of just ambush Faust. They stab him. They cut off his head. And they're just super happy about it. They're really celebrating. They're having a great time. They're like, yeah, we did it. That guy was nothing. And then Faustus rises from the ground with his head restored. (laughs) That demonic shit is coming in handy. It truly is. I don't think they realized what they were getting themselves into when they decided to go after Faustus. But here we are. 
So Faust is very smugly tells them that they are fools. And he's like, my life belongs to the devil. It cannot be taken by anyone else. And then summons Mephistopheles, orders him to take the three men to hell. But then he's like, mm, no, actually, what I want you to do is to drag them through the thorns of the forest and then hurl them off a cliff so that everyone can see what happens to people who mess with me. Mm-hmm. Like a really good revenge. Like if those guys just disappeared, no one would know like, oh, they messed with Faustus and now they're gone. Instead, everyone's going to know what happened to them. And it was because they messed with Faust. So we see them dragged off by demons on stage. And then later they appear to the audience kind of all beat up. And now all three of them have those antlers of deer sprouting out of their heads. Again, now we've tripled the cuckold joke. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's a line too, Julia, just for those who may not have known even, you know, contemporaneously about the cuckold joke where the emperor says to the knight, why, I thought thou hadst been a bachelor, but now I see <gasps> thou hadst a wife that not only gives thee horns, but makes thee wear them. Oh, shit. It's really when someone new comes in and your boss is like, yeah, fuck this guy who's like <laughs> served you flawlessly his whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I sympathize with the knight here. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy's like not trying to really call problems and as far as we've seen like it makes sense for him to kind of call out Faustus being like I don't think you can actually like realistically you would think that he can't do the things that he's claiming to do I don't blame that night yeah especially because he was like mm, I can can't get Alexander but I can get like an almost Alexander <laughs> like that's how this interaction started yeah he was like I can't bring you back the dead body of Alexander the Great but how about a spirit that looks like him mm-hmm So these three knights, they all agree. They're like, we're going to hide away in the castle. We would rather like not show our face at all and not have the world know that the shame that has befallen us because we messed with Faustus. And I think that's exactly what Faustus was trying to go for when he made this decision to go after these guys. I got to say, I don't blame them. I would do the same thing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, I'm going to retire to my bedchambers forevermore. Of course. I mean, that would be my choice uh, most days, even yeah. after not being beat up by <laughs> demons and getting uh, deer antlers. It's true. Every time I, I wake up, my husband, Eric, uh, you know, will like get up and then come back to bed and be like, oh, my little burrito. Are you ready to face the world? And I'll go, no, <laughs> because I'm not wrapped up in a full duvet plus another blanket like a little burrito. You're correct, Amanda. And I always want to be a burrito. I want to be the world's (laughs) biggest burrito. Yes. Truly. So Faustus, meanwhile, we see he is selling his horse to this guy, but warns the guy like, hey, don't ride the horse into water. And the guy's like, sure, whatever. You're giving me a fair price for this horse. I'll buy it. And so that guy leaves. Faustus starts monologuing again, his favorite activity to do, (laughs) reflecting on how all this time has passed and how the 24-year deal that he made with Lucifer is going to come to an end soon. Again, kind of letting the audience know how much time has passed since the beginning of the play. Yeah. He says, Time doth run with calm and silent foot, shortening my days and thread of vital life. Which I think is pretty beautiful because, you know, time marches on regardless of what we want it to do with calm and silent foot. Exactly. And also when you're uh, traveling across all Europe and riding a chariot pulled by dragons through the stars. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So Faustus at this point falls asleep, but the audience sees the man who bought his horse returns kind of soaking wet and says that while he was riding the horse, he rode it into a stream and the horse turned into a heap of straw. Mm -hmm. Classic. Classic magician bullshit from Faustus here. So this man tries to wake Faustus up first by yelling in his ear and then pulling on his leg. And when he does so, he just fully pulls Faustus's leg off and the man Mm -hmm. wakes up screaming. And the man who bought the horse is terrified, runs off with Faustus's leg. But then Faustus starts laughing and his leg is restored. Another hilarious prank by our dude Faustus here. Just loves a good prank. I feel like old men should not like pranking as much as they do in these kind of uh, shows (laughs) and stories. My guy, you're supposed to be like the most serious person in the world. But I guess that's not fun. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of the reason that Faustus decided to sell his soul to the devil was like, I want to have more fun with life. 
Exactly. There's also some really colorful language um, in this passage. And in the play, Faustus and the Emperor and Mephistopheles and other sort of people of status speak in blank verse, meaning it looks like a poem, but it doesn't rhyme. Mm -hmm. And all of the fucking plebeians just talk in paragraphs like like regular people. (laughs) And so the horse courser, that's how he's identified, the guy who is a horse dealer and and buys it, says, yonder is his snipper snapper. You hey pass, where's your master? Referring to Mephistopheles, which is A, always hilarious to refer to Mephistopheles as like Faustus's little bitch, even though he's, you know, the actual demon. And I thought, is this the origin of the word whippersnapper? Because according to the end notes, a snippersnapper is an uppity servant and a hay pass is a con artist or juggler, which is just incredibly delightful. So just my, my little textual note for us here. That is amazing. Amanda, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to refer to our editors as snippersnappers, but if you have to be rude to somebody at work in a way that gives you plausible deniability, consider it. There you go. I Honestly, I'll be called the snippersnapper. I'm reclaiming <laughs> it for myself. <laughs> so at this point, Wagner arrives. We haven't seen him in a little bit. And he tells Faustus, hey, the Duke of Van Holt has summoned you. And Faustus goes off with him. Meanwhile, we cut again to our boy Robin, the stable hand and the innkeeper friend. Again, they're drinking at a tavern and they overhear a wagon driver and the horse purchaser, the horse courser, who have just come in and they start talking about Faustus and basically complaining about how he was treating them. So Robin declares that he still wants to seek out his former employer, but first he has to have a couple of drinks, which big mood, Robin. I get it. I get it. You're at a bar. You're having a good time. You have stuff you have to do, but like, hey, a couple more rounds won't hurt, right? No. We next see Faustus in the court of the Duke, where he's conjuring up beautiful little illusions for the man, you know, just like, Ooh, Mr. Duke, we want to see a little uh, spirit dance. You know? Yeah, a little floaty light, a little uh, a little sheep made of wisps. Yeah. So he comments when he finishes that he notices that the Duchess is not enjoying the show and asks what she would like. And she says, I would like a dish of fresh grapes, please. Grapes, please. <laughs> and Faustus is like, Mephistopheles. Snap, snap, go get the lady some grapes. Yeah, which I mean, when you think about it, is a pretty convincing trick because they say it's the middle of January. Like, how on earth are you going to find grapes? Yeah, yeah. And as someone who is like, I really crave watermelon in the middle of winter, I understand completely. It's very hard Mm -hmm. to get seasonal produce and there's no refrigeration back then. So like, you're screwed, really. She is given the grapes by Mephistopheles. Again, like, while impressive, also kind of demeaning in my brain to Mephistopheles. Like, this demon can do everything. Why is he getting grapes for a lady who's like, I want grapes, please? Yeah, and Faustus even says specifically that he simply just got the grapes from India where it's warmer and they are growing right now. And then the spirit brought them closer. So the spirit couldn't finish the delivery. Mephistopheles had to be like, Madame, your grapes. Madame, here, your grapes, please. So in some versions at this point, Robin, the wagon driver, and the horse courser from earlier all like burst in and try to confront Faustus about his magic or like how they were treated by him. And then Faustus just charms them into silence and sends them away. And this kind of just delights the Duke and Duchess and they're so impressed and pleased by his magic and they promise to reward him. Which is just like, this is his life now. He just travels abroad, impresses rich people, and like gets rewards as a result. Yeah, there's an A text and a B text. And as you imagine, lots of debate in scholarly circles about... um what they mean, what the differences are and why. So we next cut over to Wagner, who tells the audience that he thinks that Faustus must like be getting close to dying because apparently off stage, Faustus gave Wagner all of his wealth. Uncharacteristically thoughtful. Absolutely. For Faustus, uncharacteristically thoughtful. But Wagner also like isn't sure because he's like, Faustus isn't acting like a dying man. He's out like cavorting with his fellow scholars. He's out partying at night. Like that's not what a dying man acts like. You know what I mean? Listen, it's a good insight. There's simply no logic to be had. Exactly. So speaking of which, Faustus then enters with those scholars. And one of them asks Faustus to summon the spirit of Helen of Troy. And then she just like immediately crosses the stage in most uh, productions, which delights the scholars. They're like, there's the beautiful woman from history slash mythology. Yes. So they all leave very happily. They're talking Faustus up. And then an old man enters and tries to convince Faustus that there is still time for him to repent and receive God's mercy. Not a thing you want to hear right before you're supposed to have your soul taken by the devil, right? Or, Julia, is it the perfect time to be like, you know what? I got all the earthly pleasures of this deal and now I can repent. 
it really does distress Faustus in this moment. And then Mephistopheles is like, hey, man, here's a dagger. This old man's bothering you. Go ahead and kill him. And so the old man just starts begging for his life. He appeals to God for mercy. And then Faustus lets him leave, which really pisses Mephistopheles off. And he's like, hey, you better reconfirm your vow to Lucifer or else I am going to literally rip you to shreds. Mm -hmm. And this is where in the performance, Arthur Darville really kind of like turned it up. And for the first time you see a sort of edged Mephistopheles. Mm -hmm. There are those moments where you're like, oh, this is why they got this actor for this part. And that for me really sealed the deal. Yeah, I can like almost imagine you described him earlier as kind of being like slunched and like really relaxed and imagine yes. like him straightening up to his full height, kind of like uh, Christopher Reeves playing Superman versus Clark Kent in those movies. Like, yeah, that's how I'm picturing it in my brain. Totally that kind of vibe. Oh, awesome. So Faust is threatened now by Mephistopheles, again, reconfirms his vow to Lucifer, stabs his arm, inscribes his vow in blood. And then he asks Mephistopheles to punish that old man that was trying to talk him out of his vow. And Mephistopheles says he can't because the man's soul basically is too pure and touching him would destroy Mephistopheles. Mm -hmm. And Faustus is like, huh, okay, um, can I see Helen again? And Mephistopheles <laughs> summons her. And Faustus makes a great speech about how beautiful she is and then kisses the spirit of Helen. I'm just like, guy, yeah. you're about to die. This is how you want to spend your last moment, just like kissing a beautiful reconstruction, basically, of a woman that may or may not have existed. Again, it's, it's you know, she's an object. She's an object to be acquired and a, you know, a feat to be conquered and not any amount of real connection. Yeah, absolutely. We cut from that uh, horny moment to the final night of Faustus's life. He has gathered all of his scholarly friends and tells them about the deal that he made with Lucifer, which kind of just horrifies the fellow scholars. They're like, what can we do? Like, how can we stop this? And Faustus tells them there's nothing that can be done. He, he made this deal and now he has to kind of lay with it. And they all kind of sadly leave and tell him that they'll pray for him again really just harping on like, you could have made the better choice here, my guy, but you didn't. And once they leave, the clock strikes 11 and the portal to hell opens before Faustus, which horrifies him. And knowing that he only has an hour left, Faustus tries to plead with the clock to slow down and stop time, hoping that he like might have a chance now to repent. He then begs God to reduce his time in hell so long as he can eventually be saved. He wishes he could be turned into an animal so that he could simply die rather than face the afterlife. And in kind of a, like a classic Greek tragedy sort of way, he curses his parents and then himself. And then the clock strikes midnight. The devil appears and Faustus is carried away screaming. Amanda, do you want to read the line that Faustus screams as he's, as he's pulled to hell? Adders and serpents, let me breathe a while. Ugly hell gape not. Come not, Lucifer. I'll burn my books. Ah, Mephistopheles. <laughs> And then the play ends with the chorus returning and warning the audience, Faustus is gone. Regard his hellish fall, whose fiendish fortune may exhort the wise only to wonder at unlawful things, whose deepness doth entice such forward wits to practice more than heavenly power permits. Exactly right. And that is the end of our play. It is. And one of the things that we talked about in class and that I think is really easily observed in the staged version is that this ending monologue by Faustus is a real kind of almost like a, an inversion or a parody of the opening one. Remember where he was like, ah, law, too boring. Ah, religion. Ah, gotta die at the end. And like tossing books around the stage. It's the same thing here where he kind of like goes through various ideas of like, do I turn to something else? Like curse my parents, curse myself. Like he's he's really going through all of the things. He curses like Pythagoras. You know, he's making all of these classical allusions in the exact same way. And he also sort of mirrors that lovely line that I quoted earlier in the episode from Mephistopheles. He says, no, Faustus, finally curse thyself. Curse Lucifer that hath deprived thee of the joys of heaven. Mm. Now, Lucifer didn't do that. Faustus did it to himself. Yes. But depriving him right of the face of God is the language that Mephistopheles used early on. Yeah, that. God, I love the parallels there. Marlowe's a great writer, and it feels 
as we talked about before, it feels kind of shitty that we use him only as a foil to be like, well, he wasn't Shakespeare, but and I think he should like really be studied on his own in the same light that we we kind of studied Shakespeare, because I think that this play is absolutely beautiful and funny and really hits home for a lot of our mythology loving friends here on the podcast. Yeah. And he was also a messy bitch, Julia, which we love. Yeah. The last lines of the play you read so lovely, but then there is a final end note. Ooh. And normally it just says end, right? Or exunt, which means everybody on stage exits. Uh, no, no. Marlo finishes this with a line of Latin, which translates to the hour ends the day, right? Because it just struck midnight. The author ends his work. <laughs> Marlo, we get it. Marlo, we get it. That's beautiful. God damn you, you you sassy little bitch. Ugh. I know. I've I've got to think, though, that Marlo must have been a great hang. You never get a word in edgewise, but I, I got to imagine. This is someone I would invite to, like, a fantasy, like, pub crawl, because the odds of me, like, seeing a spectacular pub brawl would be pretty high. But also, I just got to believe, you know, the guy would give you a night to remember in terms of hangs and laughs and maybe getting thrown out of, uh, you know, Elizabethan England's hottest pubs. And I love that for him. And I mean, this is like I said, this is a play that has everything. It deals with sin and damnation, but also like redemption, which is huge and kind of like like medieval versus Renaissance values and the medieval idea of God being the center of the universe to the transition for the Renaissance, where it was like man and science explains how the world works. Right. Yes. And you have power as a corrupting influence and the the way that a man's household reflects who he is as a person. And like, of course, like Marlowe didn't invent the idea of the deal with the devil, even though nowadays the story of Faustus is so quintessential to talking about the trope of the deal with the devil. Actually, there's a great story that is a predecessor to the story of Faustus, which is about a priest named Theophilius. And he basically was like a really unhappy monk who was living under a bishop who he didn't really like. And so he tries to sell his soul to the devil, but he's eventually redeemed by the Virgin Mary. So and like, of course, like throughout all of folklore, specifically in European and then North American folklore, there's a lot of examples of like, quote unquote, historic people who made deals with the devil. So like uh, Pope Sylvester II was said to either have made a pact with a female devil that he was romantically involved with, or he won the papacy by playing dice with the devil, which is hilarious. Incredible. All the way through the modern pop culture where songs like The Devil Went Down to Georgia are an incredible classic here in the U.S. for a reason. It takes this trope and sets it to music in a way that is just really fundamentally fascinating. Yeah. And there's plenty of musicians throughout history who have been accused of selling their soul to the devil for their musical prowess, which I think is fun and exciting in a lot of ways. And, you know, like even though there are many other versions of the deal with the devil, the story of Faustus is that kind of quintessential example. It's literally referred to often enough as the Faustian deal or the Mephistophelian bargain, you know? So the next time you think about uh, the deal with the devil, remember that you learned about it here, uh, talking about Faustus. And next time you need a code word for a uh, a middle manager that's out to get you at work, just remember you can call that person a snippersnapper. And remember to stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.